Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tech UK podcast with Rupert McNeil, the government's chief people officer. I'm Shaheen Sayed, and I lead Accenture's government business in the UK and Ireland. Today, we're going to be exploring some of the opportunities associated with managing a workforce as large and as diverse as the civil service, and thinking about some of the common challenges the industry and government share. So welcome, Rupert. So delighted to have you here today. I'm going to kick off with a bit of an open and a wide question. Can you please tell us a little bit about your role as government's chief people officer? Yeah, thanks, Jean. Great to be here. So my role essentially is about making sure that the civil service has the workforce it needs, the capability it needs between, well, in the short term and uh, in the medium and longer term, actually, on a sort of multi-decade basis. People who are joining us as graduates and apprentices now are going to be working with us in the 2050s, managing leading people in the 2050s, supporting citizens in the 2050s. So uh, it's really quite a long-range project. And the civil service itself is quite unique, actually, because really it's a sector. It's uh, 450,000 or so individuals in many organizations, over 30 separate, at least 30 separate organizations in terms of departments and arm's-length bodies, doing really different things, whether it's being prison officers or working in job centers or in sea, in the tax, the tax system or at the border, or developing policy helping the NHS and the education sector. So it's a really wide range of of different roles. So if there's a type of job in the UK economy, it's probably being done by somebody somewhere in the civil service. Now, we're actually also very, uh, in a very exciting way, doing the largest peacetime undertaking that the civil service has ever done, which is uh, exiting the European Union. And uh, for the first time, we're seeing that whole system operating uh, in an even more cohesive and collective way to support that effort, which is really exciting in terms of what we're doing on people strategy and what we're doing on technology as well. It's quite a complicated landscape, though, from what you're describing, Rupert, and bringing those diverse and multidisciplinary skills together, especially around a common purpose at the moment, which you know you just described, must be a challenging moment right now for you and the role that you play. I mean, it has huge opportunities as well. When you come to sort of thinking about digital skills associated with something like this, with that myriad of roles and how extensive it is, the challenge for all of us right now is trying to upskill our people as we go and also really draw from a, you know, a limited pool right now in the UK in the context of these skills. I mean, how are you thinking about that as part of the strategy? Great, great, great question. So we have had for a number of years three very clear strategic areas of focus One of them was to make sure that across the whole civil service, we had the right commercial skills and commercial capability and also the right digital capability. And the third area was actually diversity and inclusion, making sure we had a representative workforce and an inclusive culture in the civil service. We've tried to build those capabilities. And I think what's really interesting about the environment we're in now is, well, there are several features of it. One is, if you think about an organization like the civil service or a set of organizations, every organization has a purpose. Ours is to serve the government of the day and the citizens of the UK. You then need a strategy to fulfill that purpose. That will be a little bit different in each department, but essentially there's a strategy there. And then there are operating models that support the delivery of the strategy. It's true in any organization. Now, underneath that, feeding into that, you have enablers, money, data, technology, and people. And the period which like many other organizations in the world uh, we're in now, is that the distinction between those enablers is becoming increasingly blurred. You can't talk about the people element without thinking about the technology and the data, how they all work together, particularly Mm. as we look at the really exciting opportunities coming out of automation. And from a workforce perspective, we've also got this really fascinating thing, which, again, I've seen in other organizations that I've worked in, 
which is this fact that for the first time in human history, the past maybe only as much as 10 years, the technology that most people have at work is quite possibly not as good as the technology they have access to at home and as citizens. And uh, so how do you sort of bridge that? And what, um, what we feel is that there isn't really a single part of our system which is untouched by technology or digital. And what's happened over the past 20 years, as we've seen digital become a, a domain, a discipline, mm-hmm. is it's not just about the hardware or the software. It's also about a way of thinking about really good process design, system and service design, and a real ruthless focus on the user experience. And that really applies in every part of government, whether you're working in the court system or in a job center or in the national security area. You know, there is a, a focus on what's the process you're doing, what's the system you're operating in, how do you relate to other parts of government and to other organizations outside government to serve our purpose. Because it's interesting you say that there's, there's almost, there's two key points there, isn't there, just around internally servicing employees and having an employee experience that means that people that work in the civil service are interacting with technology in just a seamless way, you know, as they would with their retail bank, for example. Mm. It's, it's the same elevated sense exactly. and use of technology because that's what we expect. And then you're talking about a kind of civic impact in the context of how we design, which has fundamentally changed, hasn't it, over the past yeah. um, few years. And I'm really interested in, in the point you made around thinking when it comes to digital and what that means. Can you just expand a little bit, Rupert, on yeah. what, what are you seeing as the sort of trends and transformation internally? So, so if, I give, if, I, if I give an example, you know, we're, we're talking, about, talking about automation and how do, you, uh, how do you do that in a government context? Well, you know, at one end, there is some really basic stuff like eliminate rekeying, yeah. give people time back to do the thinking parts of their jobs, eliminate something which have a convergence in terms of the type of data that we use so that uh, we're not duplicating ourselves across the government system in terms of the data that we're using. So those are all interesting things. But everybody, really, if we're thinking about this as systems, and if we're really, as I passionately believe, we want everybody to be systems thinkers, people need to be thinking about how do I shorten the process steps? How do I eliminate the failure demand from the system as much as possible? And how do I design elegant processes? Elegant processes which are, I mean, the other thing about, about government activity, like, you know, like activity in many other spheres, is that the technology and the process is only part of it. You also need to have you know, very compassionate, interested, smart people taking emotional judgments around those processes that are sensible. So that's the human dimension to it as well. But that's a, um, everybody needs to be thinking about that. And one of the lessons that I feel I've learned over the past sort of uh, 15 years, I didn't know the start of my career, I would say, is best people to tell you about how to improve a system after the users are the people who are directly supporting the users at the front line. So, and that actually drives a whole management and leadership philosophy which makes sure that those people are as empowered as possible. And, and empowerment of colleagues further down the system is a really important part of our, our leadership philosophy. Yeah. You made a point around humans and machines. And, you know, this is an inevitable one that's going to come up in a podcast of this nature. This idea that machines are supporting humans to do their jobs better, that actually it's an augmented coexistence. Is that a philosophy that you subscribe to, Rupert? I mean, how do you think about this in the civil service? Because it's a really interesting one ideologically, right? We're having a debate in the country right now about how far does the machine go? What is right? What is ethical in terms of machine machine workforces? Let's put it that way. Do you have a sense of, of balance around this argument? Well, I've got very 
strong view about yeah. this, which is that it's all about augmentation yeah. and about we, we, we have a, a phrase that's maybe a bit trite, but I think it, it captures it, which is taking the robot out of the human. How yeah. do you take away those tedious parts of the job to make sure that people are, are able to really apply great judgment to whatever situation they're working in uh, for citizens and in the government system? Uh, and again, this is true, I think, in any, in any organization. Yeah. But I think the, um, if I take some practical examples, so I, I, yeah, one of the great privileges of uh, this job is that uh, I get to be a, a bit of an industrial tourist and go and see you know, many different work environments. And you could already see this happening. So if you take how work coaches and job centers help people find work, and you know, it's, it's very inspiring to sit next to a work coach. You might be talking to a parent returning to the labor market, someone who's starting their job, someone who's not been able to find a job. The, the process, the, the, the tools that they've got to do that now are really augmenting what they're doing. They're, they're working with software that reduces the amount of paper. It allows them to track and help the client all the way through the process. Now, that's just one example within yeah. government of people who are helping citizens in you know, in many different ways, you know, whether it's actually a prison officer who's working on having the time in their system to really help coach and rehabilitate the people they're working with, whether it's someone in the probation system, someone helping someone fill their tax return in, all, you know, all of those things are ones where you've got judgment which is made easier by giving people better tools through through augmentation. And we know that all of us now, I think, who be listening to this, that you know, the things we're talking about are good at really limited things. There is no, and yeah. I don't believe there will be in a particular hurry, automated general intelligence. And that's not to say that automation won't help us in many areas and actually help us be better emotional and judgmental beings, uh, but it won't replace that. Yeah, no, and, and it's still, I mean, to your point, it is still limited. So Rupert, last year at the Institute for Government, John Manzoni spoke of professionalising the civil service. As head of the HR profession in the civil service, what's your vision for what a professional civil service looks like? How do you see progress in this space and what's the future of it? Well, I, so I think that what's happening in the civil service in this sector, this organisation of organisations, is that uh, having been a series of departments on, on sort of one axis, we've now got a much clearer definition of a new axis, the y-axis of functions and professions. And so everybody in the civil service is going to be in a department and a member of at least one profession. Because, you know, really, you, know, you look at, for example, the digital profession. We're doing this podcast. You know, the, the line between a communications professional and a digital professional is increasingly blurred. Yeah. You could be in two professions. The same is true, actually, when you're looking at HR processes between a digital professional and an HR professional. And I think that giving people that professional identity, giving them the ability to develop careers which are fulfilling in one or more professions is a really great thing. And also, it, you know, it just raises capability. And what we're starting to look at now is, is to think not just about people's professional capability, but how does that link to pervasive capabilities in areas like leadership, parliamentary handling, process design, people who, you know, the set of people who are working in uh, international contexts. So it gives us a quite a rich vocabulary for talking about the capability that we need to deliver the work of the civil service. Um, now, to do that, it, it drives our investment in, in learning platforms, in professional standards, which are really important, quite often linked to, the, to external bodies, whether it's SOFIA in the 
technology world yeah. or CIPD in our world or many of the finance qualifications. And and then, of course, as a when you have a profession and that profession has a group of leaders at the top of it, myself and the HR directors, can start to shape how that profession will evolve. So I think what we're now doing, and we've done this process in the HR profession, is to look at what will an HR professional need to be in 2030. Now, what we hope is that that person will be dealing with a, a very diverse workforce in an inclusive culture where people are working in teams which are very distributed around the UK, probably, where yeah. you know we're make, make, taking advantage of technology, and where actually you might see increasing uh, overlap between the technology profession, the HR profession, the property and facilities management profession, because it's about where people work and around occupational psychology, for example. So professions evolve. HR is a great example. It was personnel admin, became personnel, now it's human resources. It's going to be very exciting. It might be something quite different in 2030 or 2040. The demands on you are interesting, aren't they? Because we're talking about envisaging something that is yet to come, which is incredibly exciting. It's kind of next generation to your point around what HR Mm -hmm. as a profession is going to be. When you touched on a couple of points, fungibility of resource and their skills and how people view their careers. We grew up, um, or I certainly grew up, Rupert, in a world where it was pretty singular. You know, you came into a profession, if you came in as a technologist, it was one track. The world has changed so significantly that there is no singularity of course anymore when it comes to that and and you also talked on inclusion and diversity which I want to Mm. come back to in a second when you talk about that and the possibilities it clearly is something that's resonating with the market hugely because the times recently and congratulations on this has said that the civil service is the number one graduate profession um, to go into and um, and what I thought was fascinating also about this Mm. accolade and I'll come to your thoughts Mm. on it in a second was um, that many of the graduates were pointing out um, that one of their major priorities was to make a difference, actually, that they wanted to do work that matters. Huge responsibility in the context of a profession and brilliant in the context of what is happening to the generations that are coming through. How do you see the development of this new generation that you are seeming to attract much more, you know, much more greatly, I would say, than, than any other employer right now? Well, so... That's, that's very kind of you to say. So, so we, we're very proud of that graduate offer. Um, it's a really, it's a very interesting population because the, the median age of people joining that program is probably around 27, 28. So they're not mostly coming straight from university. We've got more and more people who are joining from actually within the civil service or elsewhere in the public sector. And we are, uh, you know, we want that to be as diverse and representative as possible of the UK population. Mm-hmm. And we've done well in some areas and less well in other areas. And, and we've, we, we look at that, that group as a, as a you know, common asset across government, whether it's the, uh, the professional parts of the civil service fast stream or what we call generalist fast stream, which is really the policy and operational delivery yeah. fast stream. And what we're trying to do there is, you know, it is it's basically our first pan-civil service, our first layer of our pan-civil service leadership programs. Mm-hmm. And although when you actually get to it, perhaps at the moment only about a quarter of the senior civil service, that's the top 4,000 people, have come up through the fast stream, it's still a very important source of yeah. supply. And what we're very consciously doing is, you know, those people are playing a very important part in 
lots of parts of government, including uh, the important work of exiting the European Union. But you know, they are they are the people who are going to be leading over the next 20, 30 years in an increasingly complex world. Yeah. We need them to be as good as they possibly can be professionally and as leaders uh, and socially uh, in terms of how they think about their impact. And that group as well, for us to do that, they need to experience, I think, what it's like to be well-led. <laughs> and that's, yeah. an, that's, an, that's another important thing. So each generation, I mean, like your own great uh, great organization, the civil service is sort of a professional services firm. Yeah. And one of the things that distinguishes professional services firms, I think, is that there's a, a great sense of intergenerational stewardship from the people at the top develop and bringing people in. And that's that, in a sense, is what the Fast Dream is about and our apprenticeship programs. And I mean, when it comes to the Fast Dream, that, that, I love what you said, actually, about intergenerational leadership and the fact that, you know, we all want to leave a legacy in the context of what we are doing with our people when you, when it comes to this concept of kind of diversifying that generation and what's coming through the fast track and what you see as the next generation mm-hmm. of leadership we've been talking about ind in the market for a long long time and huge progress has been made especially in government and in the tech sector as well i would say in private mm-hmm. sector more generally um industry i think really did have a, an epiphany moment mm. um, a number of years ago. Certainly when I started 22 years ago, it was a very different place, the city. But there's still work to be done. And when it comes to this concept of what, what we, I guess, call intersectionality now, all of the lenses of diversity mm. being discussed more broadly and in a more expansive way, how do you see that within the civil service, Rupert? And the next generation of what IND is for you, can you just take us through... You're yeah. Thinking. So, so I think it's very telling that you, you put it as I and D because I think that's the that's the really interesting pivot that leading organisations like yours are doing, which is to move to. Uh, and actually, I heard uh, Jackie Wright has been our great uh, CDIO for HMRC, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who is uh, has just gone back to Microsoft. She's um, she puts it. You know, you've got the invitation to the party, which is the diversity and the representation, and then there's the invitation to dance when you're at the yeah. party. That's the yeah. inclusion piece. And, <laughs> And I think it's a, it, it is a good, it gets the essence of what this is about. And there's some also quite interesting paradoxes that we have to manage here. So on the one hand, we need to be very, very scientific about segmentation because individuals' experiences can be very different yeah. based on their characteristics, which is a point about intersectionality. But equally, we want to be very inclusive. Now, I don't think, I think those are completely compatible and necessary, but you've got to, but they're both important dimensions. Uh, so our, our phase now is to, is to, really uh, through our current diversity inclusion strategy to really drive representation looking particularly at areas where we think we were falling behind where we wanted to be so we set collectively set it's very important to say that not not imposed from above but departments decided what they felt was the right ambition for representation of people from ethnic minorities in scs senior civil service roles and people with disabilities in senior civil service roles and we set some reasonably long wavelength targets you know into where we wanted to be in the early 2020s right. early to mid 2020s and, and i'm pleased to say yeah, that drives action in terms of changing our recruitment processes changing our uh, marketing approach and other things so that's one side of it the other side of it is we also said that we wanted to be the most inclusive employer in the uk in 2020 now read that as one of um, by the time we set that target we didn't really know what that meant yeah we knew it was important, uh, but we also knew that the journey of finding out what that meant was also important. And so we have done a lot of work in terms of 
conversations, cultural inquiry in, in many different parts of the civil service, uh, working very closely with our staff networks on this and other stakeholders. And what we're getting to, I think, is you know, a very rich view of what it means for things to be inclusive, which starts to benefit everybody. You know, whether it's thinking about how you chair an inclusive conference call for people who, some of whom are just not in the room, regardless of what their characteristics are, mm-hmm. to making sure that you know, everybody's voice is being, uh, is being heard. And that takes us into the area of, of intersectionality, which is really important. Two things that we're thinking about there. One is we are just about to start a series of sprints. Nice example of yep. good digital thinking going into <laughs> other areas where we, we're picking particular topics. So, for example, the experience of ethnic minority women in government. You know, have we really heard what that's like and what we need to be doing for our colleagues who cross that intersection? Yeah. You know, we know that LGBTI colleagues have a different experience in different places. How are we addressing that? What I'm interested in as well, I mean, they're all interesting, but one that has come to me in the past sort of few days is you know, the, the incidence of people who are neurodiverse, dyslexia, for example, um, and uh, other mental health conditions. Yeah. So, and how do, you, how do you deal with that? And also, and this is really, I think, a fascinating thing that employers will have to wrestle with, which is that when we're looking at the workplace and property, the environment, the workplace, which is very friendly and facilitates people who are, for example, on the um, autism spectrum, may be very different, in fact, contradictory, if I put it that way, mm. to the environment that somebody who is has got early stage Alzheimer's. So there are going to be some quite interesting yeah. questions about the workplace, the environment, that intersectionality, uh, intersectionality raises. It's something which we're very focused on. And we've also really focused on this question of segmentation because we knew with our fast stream, we just we were very alarmed to see that while our black and minority ethnic percentages were going up, our black British participation was not. Right. So we need to address that. But that, and this is why diversity and inclusion is such a fascinating area, you know, it, it then drove us to another set of questions, which was, well, at least we know because we've got segmentation data yeah. for ethnic minority colleagues and applicants, but really we couldn't have that level of granular conversation about whether someone had a sensory disability or a neurodiversity condition or other things. So that's now driving us to ask, working with network groups, with representative groups, about how we can start to categorize and segment uh, people with disabilities. You know, I, you know I've, I've got you know, an anxiety disorder. I have one type of disability. Other than wearing glasses, I don't have a, 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 a visual yeah. The disability, but it's very individualized. That drives you too to the whole question of a people strategy and a workforce strategy that really is as far as possible focused on the individual. Yeah. And I think that's really exciting because what that is doing is bringing two things together. Because if you're thinking about citizens and customers as individuals, individual configuration, if you call it that, rather yeah. than customization, and do the same thing for your workforce. That's the sweet spot that we could actually get to uh, in the next decade. And that's a really powerful way to close, actually, Rupert, because what is fascinating about that is this level of personalization that you've described. Number one is really inspiring. And number two, I think, just in the context of the points you made around data, I mean, my perspective is, is data kind of informs the story, but it's the culture that you described and that sense of individualization and the people strategy that really is going to unlock 
the potential and get the greatness from people that you know we are all capable of which is a lovely thing to hear so i wanted to thank you on that note rupert mcneil thank you very much thanks for having me